Section 22 of The Valley of the Moon by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 2, Chapter 7 Billy quarreled with good fortune. He suspected he was too prosperous on the wages he received. What with the accumulating savings account, the paying of the monthly furniture installment and the house rent, the spending money in pocket, and the good fare he was eating, he was puzzled as to how Saxon managed to pay for the goods used in her fancy work. Several times he had suggested his inability to see how she did it, and been baffled each time by Saxon's mysterious laugh. I can't see how you do it on the money, he was contending one evening. He opened his mouth to speak further, then closed it, and for five minutes thought with knitted brows. Say, he said, what's become of that frilly breakfast cap you was working on so hard? I ain't never seen you wear it, and it was sure too big for the kid. Saxon hesitated, with pursed lips and teasing eye. With her untruthfulness, had always been a difficult matter. To Billy, it was impossible. She could see the cloud drift in his eyes deepening and his face hardening in the way she knew so well when he was vexed. Say, Saxon, you ain't, you ain't selling your work. And thereat she related everything, not omitting Mercedes Higgins' part in the transaction, nor Mercedes Higgins' remarkable burial trousseau but Billy was not to be led astray by the latter. In terms anything but uncertain, he told Saxon that she was not to work for money. But I have so much spare time, Billy dear, she pleaded. He shook his head. Nothing doing. I won't listen to it. I married you, and I'll take care of you. Nobody can say Billy Roberts' wife has to work, and I don't want to think it myself. Besides, it ain't necessary. But Billy, she began. Nope. That's one thing I won't stand for, Saxon. Not that I don't like fancy work. I do. I like it like hell. Every bit you make. But I like it on you. Go ahead and make all you want of it for yourself. And I'll put up for the goods. Why, I'm just whistling and happy all day long, thinking of the boy and seeing you at home here working away on all them nice things because I know how happy you are doing it. But honest to God, Saxon, it'd all be spoiled if I knew you was doing it to sell. You see, Billy Roberts' wife don't have to work. That's my brag to myself, mind you. And besides, it ain't right. You're a dear, she whispered, happy despite her disappointment. I want you to have all you want, he continued, and you're going to get it as long as I got two hands sticking on the ends of my arms. I guess I know how good the things are you wear. Good to me, I mean, too. I'm dry behind the ears, and maybe I've learned a few things I oughtn't to before I knew you. But I know what I'm talking about, and I want to say that outside the clothes down underneath and the clothes down underneath the outside ones, I never saw a woman like you. Oh. He threw up his hands as if despairing of ability to express what he thought and felt, then essayed a further attempt. It's not a matter of being only clean. 
though that's a whole lot. Lots of women are clean. It ain't that. It's something more and different. It's, well, it's the look of it, so white and pretty and tasty. It gets on the imagination. It's something I can't get out of my thoughts of you. I want to tell you lots of men can't strip to advantage, and a lots of women, too. But you, well, you're a wonder, that's all, and you can't get too many of them nice things to suit me, and you can't get them too nice. For that matter, Saxon, you could just blow yourself. There's lots of easy money laying around. I'm in great condition. Billy Murphy pulled down seventy-five round iron dollars only last week for putting away the pride of North Beach. That's what he paid us the fifty back out of. But this time it was Saxon who rebelled. There's Carl Hansen, Billy argued. The second Sharky. The alfalfa sportin' riders are calling him. And he calls himself champion of the United States Navy. Well, I got his number. He's just a big stiff. I've seen him fight, and I can pass him the sleep medicine just as easy. The secretary of the Sporting Life Club offered to match me, and a hundred dollars in it for the winner. And it'll be all yours to blow in any way you want. What do you say? If I can't work for money, you can't fight, was Saxon's ultimatum, immediately withdrawn. But you and I don't drive bargains. Even if you'd let me work for money, I wouldn't let you fight. I've never forgotten what you told me about how prize fighters lose their silk. Well, you're not going to lose yours. It's half my silk, you know. And if you won't fight, I won't work. There. And more. I'll never do anything you don't want me to, Billy. Same here, Billy agreed. Though just the same, I'd like most to death to have just one go at that square-head Hanson. He smiled with pleasure at the thought. So let's forget it all now, and you sing me Harvest Days on that dinky, what you may call it. When she had complied, accompanying herself on the ukulele, she suggested his weird cowboy's lament. In some explicable way of love, she had come to like her husband's one song. Because he sang it, she liked its inanity and monotonousness, and most of all, it seemed to her, she loved his hopeless and adorable flattening of every note. She could even sing with him, flattening as accurately and deliciously as he. Nor did she undeceive him in his sublime faith. I guess Bert and the rest have joshed me all the time, he said. You and I get along together with it fine, she equivocated, for in such matters she did not deem the untruth a wrong. Spring was on when the strike came into the railroad shops. The Sunday before it was called, Saxon and Billy had dinner at Bert's house. Saxon's brother came, though he found it impossible to bring Sarah, who refused to budge from her household rut. Bert was blackly pessimistic, and they found him singing with sardonic glee. Nobody loves a millionaire. Nobody likes his looks. Nobody will share his slightest care. He classes with thugs and crooks. Thriftiness has become a crime. So spend everything you earn. We're living now in a funny time when money is made to burn. Mary went about the dinner preparation, flaunting 
unmistakable signs of rebellion, and Saxon, rolling up her sleeves and tying on an apron, washed the breakfast dishes. Bert fetched a pitcher of steaming beer from the corner saloon, and the three men smoked and talked about the coming strike. It ought to come years ago, was Bert's dictum. It can't come any too quick now to suit me, but it's too late. We're beaten thumbs down. Here's where the last of the Higgins get theirs. In the neck, kerwop. Oh, I don't know, Tom, who had been smoking his pipe gravely, began the council. Organized labor's getting stronger every day. Why, I can remember when there wasn't any unions in California. Look at us now. Wages and hours and everything. You talk like an organizer, Bert sneered, shoving the bull con on the boneheads. But we know different. Organized wages won't buy as much now as unorganized wages used to buy. They got us whipsawed. Look at Frisco, the labor leaders doing the dirtier politics than the old parties, pawing and squabbling over graft and going to San Quentin. Why? What are the Frisco carpenters doing? Let me tell you one thing, Tom Brown. If you listen to all you hear, you'll hear that every Frisco carpenter is union and getting full union wages. Do you believe it? It's a damn lie. There ain't a carpenter that don't rebate his wages Saturday night to the contractor. And that's your building trades in San Francisco. While the leaders are making trips to Europe, on the earnings of the tenderloin, when they ain't coughed it up to lawyers to get out of wearing stripes. That's all right, Tom concurred. Nobody's denying it. The trouble is labor ain't quite got his eyes open. It ought to play politics, but the politics ought to be the right kind. Socialism, huh? Bert caught him up with scorn. Wouldn't they sell us out just as the Roofs and Schmitz have? Get the men that are honest, Billy said. That's the whole trouble. Not that I stand for socialism. I don't. All our folks was a long time in America. And I am, for one, won't stand for a lot of fat Germans and greasy Russian Jews telling me how to run my country when they can't speak English yet. Your country, Bert cried. Why, you bonehead, you ain't got a country. That's a fairy story the grafters shove at you every time they want to rob you some more. But don't vote for the grafters, Billy contended. If we select honest men, we get honest treatment. I wish you'd come to some of our meetings, Billy, Tom said wistfully. If you would, you'd get your eyes open and vote the socialist ticket next election. Not on your life, Billy declined. When you catch me in a socialist meeting will be when they can talk like white men. Bert was humming. We're living now in a funny time when money is made to burn. Mary was too angry with her husband because of the appending strike and his incendiary utterances to hold conversation with Saxon and the latter, be puzzled, listen to the conflicting opinions of the men. Where are we at? she asked them with a merriness that concealed her anxiety at heart. We ain't at, Bert snarled. We're gone. But meat and oil have gone up, she chafed, and Billy's wages have been cut, and the shopmen's were cut last year. Something must be done. 
The only thing to do is fight like hell, Bert answered. Fight and go down fighting, that's all. We're licked anyhow, but we can have a last run for our money. That's no way to talk, Tom rebuked. The time for talking's past, old cock. The time for fighting has come. Hell of a chance you'd have against regular troops and machine guns, Billy retorted. Oh, not that way. There's such things as greasy sticks that go up with a loud noise and leave holes. Then there's such things as emery powder. Oh, ho, Mary burst out upon him. Arms akimbo. So that's what it means. That's what the emery in your vest pocket meant. Her husband ignored her. Tom smoked with a troubled air. Billy was hurt. It showed plainly in his face. He ain't been doing that, Bert, he asked, his manner showing his expectancy of his friend's denial. Sure thing, if you want to know. I'd see him in hell, if I could, before I go. He's a bloody-minded anarchist, Mary complained. Men like him killed McKinley and Garfield and, and all the rest. He'll be hung, you'll see. Mark my words. I'm glad there's no children in sight, that's all. It's hot air, Billy comforted her. He's just teasing you, Saxon soothed. He always was a josher. But Mary shook her head. I know. I hear him talking in his sleep. He swears and curses something awful and grits his teeth. Listen to him now. Bert, his handsome face bitter, and devil may care, had tilted his chair back against the wall and was singing. Nobody loves a millionaire. Nobody likes his looks. Nobody'll share his slightest care. He classes with thugs and crooks. Tom was saying something about reasonableness and justice, and Bert ceased from singing to catch him up. Justice, huh? Another pipe dream? I'll show you where the working class gets justice. You remember Forbes, J. Alliston Forbes, who wrecked the Alta California Trust Company and salted down two cold millions? I saw him yesterday in a big hell-bent automobile. What'd he get? Eight years' sentence. How long did he serve? Less than two years. Pardoned out on account of ill health. Ill hell. We'll be dead and rotted before he kicks the bucket. Here, look out this window. You see the back of that house with the broken porch rail? Mrs. Daneker lives there. She takes in washing. Her old man was killed on the railroad. Nitsky on damages, contributory negligence, or fellow-servant something or other flim-flam. That's what the court handed her. Her boy Archie was sixteen. He was on the road, a regular road kid. He blew in the Fresno and rolled a drunk. Do you want to know how much he got? Two dollars and eighty cents. Get that. Two eighty. And what did the alfalfa judge hand him? Fifty years. He served eight of it already in San Quentin. And he'll go on serving it till he croaks. Mrs. Daneker says he's bad with consumption. Caught it inside. But she ain't got the pull to get him pardoned. Archie the kid steals two dollars and eighty cents from a drunk and gets fifty years. J. Alliston Forbes sticks up the Alta Trust for two millions and gets less than two years. Whose country is this anyway? You're an Archie the kids? Guess again. It's J. Alliston Forbes. Oh, 
Nobody likes a millionaire, nobody likes his look. Nobody'll share his slightest care. He classes with thugs and crooks. Mary at the sink, when Saxon was just finishing the last dish, untied Saxon's apron and kissed her with a sympathy that women alone feel for each other under the shadow of maternity. Now you sit down, dear. You mustn't tire yourself, and it's a long way to go yet. I'll get your sewing for you. You can listen to the men talk. But don't listen to Bert. He's crazy. Saxon sewed and listened, and Bert's face grew bleak and bitter as he contemplated the baby clothes in her lap. There you go, he blurted out, bringing kids into the world when you ain't got any guarantee you can feed them. You must have had a seuss last night, Tom grinned. Bert shook his head. Oh, what's the use of getting grouched, Billy cheered. It's a pretty good country. It was a pretty good country, Bert replied. When we was all Mohegans, but not now, we're jiggerooed, we're hornswoggled, we're back to a standstill. We're double-crossed to a fair UL. My folks fought for this country, so did Yorn, all of you. We freed the niggers, killed the Indians, and starved and froze and sweat and fought. The land looked good to us. We cleared it and broke it and made the roads and built the cities. And there was plenty for everybody. And we went on fighting for it. I had two uncles killed at Gettysburg. All of us was mixed up in that war. Listen to Saxon talk any time. What her folks went through to get out here and get ranches and horses and cattle and everything. And they got them. All our folks got them. Mary's too. And if they'd been smart, they'd have held on to them, she interpolated. Sure thing, Burke continued. That's the very point. We're losers. We've been robbed. We couldn't mark cards, deal from the bottom, and ring in cold decks like the others, where the white folks had failed. You see, times changed, and there was two kinds of us, the lions and the plugs. The plugs only worked. The lions only gobbled. They gobbled the farms, the mines, the factories, and now they've gobbled the government. Where the white folks and the children of white folks that was too busy being good to be smart. Where the white folks that lost out. Where the ones that been skinned, do you get me? You'd make a good soapboxer, Tom commended. If only you'd get the kink straightened out in your reasoning. It sounds all right, Bert, Billy said. Only it ain't. Any man can get rich today. Or be President of the United States, Bert snapped. Sure thing, if he's got it in him. Just the same, I ain't heard you making a noise like a millionaire or a president. Why? You ain't got it in you. You're a bonehead, a plug. That's why. Skidoo for you. Skidoo for all of us. At the table while they ate, Tom talked of the joys of farm life he had known as a boy and as a young man, and confided that it was his dream to go and take up government land somewhere, as his people had done before him. Unfortunately, as he explained, Sarah was set, so that the dream must remain a dream. It's all in the game, Billy sighed. It's played to rules. Someone has got to get knocked out, I suppose. A little later, while Bert was off on a fresh diatribe, 
Billy became aware that he was making comparisons. This house was not like his house. Here was no satisfying atmosphere. Things seemed to run with a jar. He recollected that when they arrived, the breakfast dishes had not yet been washed. With a man's general obliviousness of household affairs, he had not noted details, yet it had been borne in on him all morning, in a myriad of ways, that Mary was not the housekeeper Saxon was. He glanced proudly across at her and felt the spur of an impulse to leave his seat, go round and embrace her. She was a wife. He remembered her dainty undergarmenting, and on the instant into his brain leaped the image of her so appareled, only to be shattered by Bert. Hey, Bill, you seem to think I've got a grouch. Sure thing I have. You ain't had my experiences. You've always done teamin' and pulled down easy money prize fightin'. You ain't known hard times. You ain't been through strikes. You ain't had to take care of an old mother and swallow dirt on her account. It wasn't until after she died that I could rip loose and take or leave as I felt like it. Take that time I tackled the Niles Electric and see what a work plug gets handed out to him. The head cheese sizes me up, pumps me a lot of questions, and gives me an application blank. I make it out. Paying a dollar to a doctor, they sent me to for a health certificate. Then I got to go to a picture garage and get my mug taken for the Niles Electric Rogues Gallery, and I cough up another dollar for the mug. The head squirt takes the blank, the health certificate, and the mug, and fires more questions. Did I belong to a labor union, me? Of course I told him the truth. I guess knit. I needed the job. The grocery wouldn't give me any more tick. And there was my mother. Huh, thinks I. Here's where I am a real carman. Back platform for me, where I can pick up the fancy skirts. Nitsky. Two dollars, please. Me. My two dollars. All for a pewter badge. Then there was a uniform. Nineteen fifty, and get it anywhere else for fifteen. Only that was to be paid out of my first month. And then five dollars in change in my pocket. My own money. That was the rule. I borrowed that five from Tom Donovan, the policeman. Then what? They worked me for two weeks without pay, breaking me in. Did you pick up any fancy skirts? Saxon queried teasingly. Bert shook his head glumly. I only worked a month. Then we organized, and they busted our union hiring a kite. And you boobs in the shop will be busted the same way if you go out on strike, Mary informed him. That's what I've been telling you all along, Bert replied. We ain't got a chance to win. Then why go out was Saxon's question. He looked at her with lackluster eyes for a moment, then answered, Why did my two uncles get killed at Gettysburg? End of section 22